Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Before my last year in seminary, I did an intern year in ministry in Charleston, West Virginia, 3,800 member church that used to be over 7,000 in this heyday. Can you imagine? There was a professor in the congregation who was writing a book about all of the very outside the mainstream churches found in the mountains and the hollows of Appalachia. She kept telling me she wanted me to go to one of those services with her to experience some of the very different kinds of things I would experience, as I would experience in churches. Well, you might not be surprised to know that I turned down the opportunity to go to the one that was a snake handling church. <laughs> Yet I did go with her to a very fundamentalist church with about 15 people there in a falling down house. And it was one in an area where everybody was in deep poverty. Everybody had a hard scrabble life. They didn't have a trained pastor to lead the service. They had one of their neighbors who took turns. Their worship was filled with fiddle and banjo music, hymns from what was called the Country Western Hymnal, loud shouts of amen, praise the Lord, and thank you, Jesus, and people appearing to faint from something they call being slain by the Spirit. There was a lot of jumping and dancing and foot stomping to the music and absolutely nothing was boring about that service. In the midst of what seemed like a rather joyful service, I was a little disturbed by the fire and brimstone sermon, which seemed to paint God as someone wrathful and out to get them if they didn't straighten up and fly right. The preacher seemed to think that fear rather than love was the primary motivator of faith. While well, I was interested in their way of worship and admired that they were all clearly passionate in their faith, there was one song that took me aback so much that it was all I could do to not allow myself to laugh as my natural reaction to it. You see, in this extremely fundamentalist church, Every single word from the Bible is literal. Nothing is considered a parable. Even if Jesus calls it a story, nothing is a story, much less a poem or a metaphor. And they saw anything to do with modern science as an offense to faith. On that particular Sunday, their main complaint went back to Darwin and the idea of evolution. I googled the song and found, and found it online, believe it or not, and since I still can't sing without cracking up, I will just read you the verses. Now imagine as I read this that it is being sung by 15 people, up-tempo, fiddle and banjo in the background, clamp clapping and stomping to the music. I don't come from no monkey, don't you tell me that. Although I'm very hairy, that still doesn't change the fact that God created Adam, took his rib, then made Eve. 
They didn't look like monkeys. They looked just like you and me. I don't come from no monkey. How dare you say I do? I don't swing on a worn out tire. I don't live in a zoo. I ain't no egghead scientist, but I know what I know. I know I ain't no monkey. The Bible tells me so. <laughs> you say my daddy was a gorilla, an ape who learned to talk. And my mother was a monkey girl who stood up straight and walked. No, I don't come from no monkey. No, that's not it at all. I ain't got no Uncle Piltdown or no Aunt Neanderthal. So forget those cosmic questions that you've been pondering. Put your faith in the Bible. Don't question anything. Don't question anything. Well, that's one way to get stuck and immovable in your faith, since the only faith way that faith grows is through asking more and more questions. For someone who won't ask a question, I guess science is a real threat, and that's why some very literal thinking Christians dismiss it. Of course, as the years pass by and the world knows more and more, it's rather hard to keep ignoring it. On the other hand, there are some scientists who fall into the same literalist trap. Scientific materialists often dismiss the idea of God as creator because they are also making the assumption that Genesis is, that Genesis is about the mechanics of creation rather than the purpose of it. The creation story in Genesis is a portrait of God, whose signature and order, whose design and artistry are at the heart of all that is. The story is poetic, with the intention of describing the beauty and wonder of our world as coming into being through the loving hand of a creator. To say it is a description of exactly how and when the world was created is kind of to miss the point. Believing in science doesn't dismiss God as creator. I don't care if I come from monkeys or sea slugs. I still believe that God made not only you and me and the world we live in, but the vast reaches of the universe. Who has not had moments of gazing and wonder at the gifts of nature and feeling overwhelmed by a sense of God's presence? Maybe you were at the ocean or at the Grand Canyon or out in the country in a big meadow filled with wildflowers. A professor that I had back in seminary who remained a friend of mine, Doug Otati, suggests that if we start to lose our sense of awe and mystery before God, we just need to go to the seashore on a moonless, cloudless night and look up. He says, we know that only a minute fraction of the stars and planets are visible to our eyes. There are galaxies and nebulae and black holes beyond our ability to detect. The whole thing has been expanding from a single point for billions of years. But focus on the light of a single star. It has traveled an enormous distance, having left its point of origin millions of years ago. And the light of that star has traveled other directions, not only toward us. It's a staggering thought, isn't it? You and I are just dots. You're just one dot. I'm just one dot on this little planet and one little galaxy among billions of galaxies. That realization is made all the more amazing because God not only, only sees 
my one dot and your one dot. But scripture tells us that God knows how many hairs are on your head. In other words, God knows you so deeply, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and yet still loves you more than you could ever imagine. God desires a relationship with you, wants wholeness and peace for you. Much of our faith concentrates on that all-important relationship as it should. However, sometimes in our focus on ourselves, we also miss the bigger picture. A reading from Colossians is meant to point to that bigger picture. It's a hymn to Christ. Scholars don't know if it was specifically written by Paul or that he includes it in this letter because it is a hymn that they often repeated together. He includes it in his letter to the people at Colossae because he's worried about the influence of the Gnostics in the church. The Gnostics believed that only things of the spirit were good and anything to do with this world was evil. That's quite a contradiction to the creation that God has called good, or the world into which Christ was born and redeemed. In the early church, followers of Jesus were persecuted and often killed by the Romans who claimed Caesar as Lord and certainly didn't want to hear that Christ is Lord. Plenty of folks dismissed the apostles as followers of this little-known rabbi who came from a backwater town, wandered around Galilee teaching and healing some people, and then died on a criminal's cross outside the city. Why would anyone want to worship him? Paul encourages the Christians of the Colossian church by including in his letter this exuberant hymn of praise to the cosmic Christ. While the hymn might not seem radical to you, in Paul's day, it was shocking. Beyond the audacity of claiming someone else as Lord instead of Caesar, it was like if you said today that this woodworker who lives in this backwoods town in Montana, mostly a town that's unknown and a carpenter who's unknown, is the most important person who ever lived. Paul is saying that Jesus was more than just a man who walked this earth for about 33 years. He was also the pre-existent Christ before creation. And the creation came to being through him. If you're having deja vu about hearing words like that somewhere else in scripture, you're probably thinking of the words of the prologue of the Gospel of John that we read at Christmas time. It refers to Christ as the Logos, or the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Back in 1958, at a World Council of Churches conference, a theologian named Joseph Sittler talked about how tragic it is that we have lost touch with this aspect of Christ. We talk about the historical Jesus and the divine resurrected Son of God, but we don't talk much about the cosmic Christ. What has happened to this Christ, he asks. 
The church began with a blaze of cosmic fire, and we brought that blaze of light down to a flicker in the pious little private soul of individuals. I don't think he was trying to dismiss the importance of faith of individuals, but pointing out that there is so much to Jesus Christ than we consider. It makes me think of a scene from Disney's animated movie, Aladdin. How many of you ever saw that? Oh, more of you need to see that. <laughs> our ben Locke from our congregation played Aladdin in a play at his school about a year or two ago. Well, in this edition of Aladdin, the late, hilarious Robin Williams gives voice to this big blue genie who obviously comes out of the lamp when Aladdin rubs the lamp. Aladdin is trying to figure out what happened, who this is, and the genie explains himself. He says, phenomenal cosmic power! Itty bitty living space. That's what we do with our image of God, isn't it? We want an all-powerful God that we can kind of carry in our hip pocket or our pocketbook and easy, accessible, when I'm ready to think about God. Tim Trussell Smith asks, do we desire a very personal relationship with God who is in the minutia of our lives? Or do we desire an all-powerful, timeless God who is beyond our comprehension? Maybe they're not mutually exclusive. You see, the cosmic sea of spinning stars functions with remarkable order and efficiency. I believe God truly did create a universe of endless wonder. Christ was present at creation and is the logos, the word, that encompasses all of creation. If somebody figures out whose car that is going off, let me know. Christ is the light the love before the universe ever began and will continue on forever, the love that was made flesh in Jesus of Nazareth, the love that continues to walk with you and walk with me every day. Pierre Tillard de Chardin, a name I'm sure you banter about in conversations all the time, was a French scientist, priest, theologian, philosopher, and anthropologist who began speaking about the cosmic Christ in the 1920s and 30s. For Tillard, every particle of the universe is a part of the cosmic Christ. And through love, everything that exists is drawn deeper into that connection. Love is the energy, the living context of each person in relationship to God, with each other, and with all of created reality. In the same way, every act of love from every person, no matter how small, no matter how hidden, moves all of reality closer to wholeness and unity with one another and with God. God is not a distant, remote outsider who winds up a clock and sits back and watches, but is deeply involved in the tiniest aspect of our lives and of all creation. Christ's presence is with us in the form of love as the energy that moves creation forward. When we sing, this little light of mine, 
I'm going to let it shine. We're talking about what Matthew Fox would call the radiance of luminosity in every being in the universe. Christ who came among us, who became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth, is internal to the world, rooted in the world, even in the heart of the tiniest atom. Friends, we see the cosmic Christ in the light within us and in each other. Long ago, someone looked up into the sky on a dark night and wrote a psalm about it. We had it in our call to worship and our first hymn. O Lord, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? It's a wonder, isn't it? The love of Christ is at once all-encompassing of time and space and as specific as the light within you and the love within your heart. It is as general as the movement of the stars and as specific as the broken, poured-out body of Christ on the cross. Here at Southminster, we call ourselves a Matthew 25 church. It's a reference to another scripture about the cosmic Christ at the end of the world. Christ looks to some of those gathered on one side of him and praises them, saying that they gave him food and something to drink and clothes to wear and a welcome when he was a stranger and even care when he was sick and when he was in prison. And the people ask, when did we do that? And what does Jesus answer, you remember? As you did it to even one of the least of these, you did it to me. Yes, in the scheme of the whole cosmos, you and I are just a dot, just a speck of dust. But you may have noticed that specks of dust in the air only seem invisible until they float in a beam of light. And there is a beauty to that dust because it draws attention to the light that illuminates it. May you and I embrace the love of Christ deep within and share it, share that light with this world that needs it so much. Let your light shine. Amen.